Children, um, when I first arrived here, uh, when I came to church this morning, I was the first one here at church. The building uh, was locked up when I arrived, but I had a key in my pocket, key to the front door there, and I used that key to open the front door of the church and to go inside. Well, by opening the door with the key that I had and going on inside, I made it possible for y'all to uh, do the same, to open the door and come inside yourself, because I went before you. Now, I give you that illustration, children, because Jesus in this passage is referred to as a forerunner. That is, somebody who goes before someone else. Just like I went before you and opened the door of this church with the key that I had, and you followed me into the church, Jesus is our forerunner, the Christian's forerunner into heaven. He has gone there first. He had the keys, if you will. The Pope doesn't have the keys. Jesus does. Uh, and he opened uh, the, the, uh, the doors of heaven so that we who are united to Jesus, that is, trusting in Jesus by faith, we get to go in behind him into heaven. And that's one of the great truths that is taught in this passage by the writer to the Hebrews and the Holy Spirit, who ultimately is the writer of this work that I'm preaching from this morning. God is the ultimate author of all of Scripture, and Jesus The spirit of Jesus is the one who inspired the writer of the Hebrews to write about him and how he provides us with access and the hope of heaven, which, by the way, again, you probably are tired of hearing this, most of you, but hope is not the hope that is, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, or I hope it's cooler tomorrow to be more uh, current, Um, which we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Christian hope is a confidence and a certainty about something that is future, but is certain even though it hasn't happened yet. It is future. That's the Christian biblical word that's used here. That's the hope that we're talking about today when I say hope. So throughout the remainder of the sermon, that's what I mean by hope. A future that is certain. A future event that is certain. Uh, And you need to know that as you read your New Testament too, by the way and old, but particularly new, because that's the uh, nuance of the New Testament Greek word there. So, this passage is addressed to, uh, look back at verse 12, and keep your Bibles open, because I'm going to keep referring to several verses here uh, throughout this sermon. It's, uh, it is speaking to, the writer is speaking to, verse 12, those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then he goes on to specify, give one specific example of somebody who through faith and patience inherited the promises, and that is the great father of our faith, Abraham. But we are like Abraham. We are sons of Abraham, and daughters, by the way, sons is uh, generic there, uh, as Paul uses it in Galatians. We are children of Abraham. And so, just as the uh, he is addressed, uh, he is addressing us, who uh, through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so, keep that in mind. It is to all believers that this is being addressed. Uh, anybody who professes the name of Christ, and this passage uh, points to Abraham, as I already said, as the premier example of somebody who did this, who inherited the promises through his faith and his patience or perseverance in the faith. Uh, but we are to be like Abraham. We are 
children of Abraham. And the writer here, when he speaks of the promises that were inherited by Abraham and and will be inherited by us as well, these uh, promises are those promises that are part and parcel of that gracious covenant that God made with Jesus as the second Adam, and in him with all of those who for whom Christ lived and died and rose again, namely the elect. Um, by the way, uh, you should all be, uh, would encourage you all to memorize scripture first, but also be memorizing your shorter catechism uh, questions uh, and answers, which are great theology. If you have the shorter catechism memorized, you're a better theologian than most in, uh, pulpiteers in this area. I'll put it that way. Uh, but the one larger catechism question that is worth memorizing, even though most of them are beyond the scope of my powers to memorize, is this question 30, oh boy, um, uh, it's in the 30s, and it uh, basically says, with whom was the covenant of grace made? And the covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam, and in him with all the elect as his seed. So I kind of paraphrased it there just a moment ago. But that, that is an excellent um, summary of the covenant and who it's made with. It's made first and foremost with Christ. Paul makes that point in Galatians 3. But it's ultimately made with all of us through our union with him by faith. Uh, and it's a, it's a it's wonderful theology. I'll just put it that way. and worth, mem- uh, worth memorizing if you can find the question number. It's in the 30s again. Anyway, back to the point. I was making. So he's referring to these promises that are made in the covenant. And the promises that he's referring to are here are promises which have yet to be fully realized for believers. So these are promises whose fulfillment is yet future for us, at least to some degree, future for those of us who are trusting in Christ. But these are promises whose fulfillment we expectantly hope for. And again, hope using it the way I described it earlier. We are confident of its full, that we will receive those promises, but they are yet future for us. So we're going to look at this hope that we have as believers, uh, hope in the promises, uh, under three points. Uh, again, summarizing verses, the content of verses 19 and 20 of chapter 6. First, we're going to look at the content of your hope. Then we're going to look at the quality of your hope. And finally, we are going to look at the reason for your hope. And by the way, each of those three points has a colon after it with a sub, uh, you know, uh, what's the word, sub something, uh, explanation of, of it. So, for example, here's our first point. The content of your hope uh, colon, which is essentially the same covenant promises that God made to Abraham. That's the content of your hope. The covenant promises, uh, essentially the same, uh, that God made to Abraham. Uh, let me reread verses 11 through and verse 12 and the first part of verse 13. So again, you see I'm deriving this point from the passage, uh, and again, the greater passage. Uh, that that uh, summarized uh, or finalized in verses 19 and 20. But again, verse 11, And we desire, this is the writer uh, and other uh, uh, spiritual leaders or shepherds that were over this flock, and we desire that each one of you 
show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, remember they were struggling with their faith because of persecution they were experiencing, that you may not be sluggish, but rather imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then he says the first part of verse 13, for when God made the promise, to Abraham, and then he goes on. So the promises, including and summarized in the promises that God gave to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. So what what is the content of your hope? What what is the content of, of the promises made in that covenant made to Abraham? Well, the first of two that are alluded to here in our passage or are mentioned in our passage, the first is the promise of a heavenly home. The promise of heaven itself. This is alluded to, this promise is alluded to in verse 20 of our passage. He says, um, the veil, he speaks of the veil, I'll go back to verse 19. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered. So this is the veil in the heavenly temple, heavenly tabernacle where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. So again, back to the illustration with you children, one who has gone before that we also might follow him to heaven. He has gone as a forerunner into the heavenly holy of holies that we might also go in there and commune with God eternally uh, with him without any hindrance on account of our sin. And Jesus has gone before us. So he's gone before us where? To heaven. That we might follow. And that that might be our final destination. Remember, we're pilgrims in a foreign land right now. Hebrews 11. We are wanderers and strangers on the earth. This is not our home. We are uh, we are in the wilderness. We're headed for Canaan, but we haven't arrived yet. But we are going to arrive. There's no doubt about that if you are a Christian. And we'll get... I'll define that a little bit more as we uh, move toward uh, the end of the, uh, the message. But anyway, so the first promise, the content of your hope, the first thing that is promised in the covenant uh, made with Abraham, uh, and which is essentially the same as the one made to us, is the promise of a heavenly home. Now this home is described for us more fully, I was referencing this a moment ago, but I'll read it now, in chapter 11. It's alluded to us in verse uh 20 of our text, but a better, a fuller description is found in chapter 11. This well-known passage, I read it fairly regularly to y'all, but we're going to read it again because it's so good. It's all good. You know what I mean. Good for the topic at hand. Uh, Verses 8 through 10 and then 13 to 16. And we're going to go back to this passage again in a few, few moments, so you might want to keep your marker there. But verses 8 through 10 first, uh, and says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, uh, meaning out of Ur, by faith obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. This is Canaan, of course. Verse 9, by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. There it is. 
For, verse 10, he was looking for a city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. And then down to verse 13, And all these died in faith, meaning with faith, not receiving the promises. Wait a minute, they were in Canaan. Yeah, but they didn't receive the promise. It wasn't fulfilled in Can- by their just merely walking in that place in the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them, meaning with spiritual eyes, and having welcomed them from a distance, um, time uh, temporally speaking, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been seeking, thinking rather, of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. That's a reference to Ur, where they originally came from. But, verse 16, But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, meaning in heaven. We are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are just like them. We are in the same place spiritually that they were physically and spiritually too, actually. We are on the way, but we haven't arrived yet. Even though they arrived in physical Canaan, they were still on the way. It was a foreign place to them. Um, And that wasn't technically home for them. What home was they looking for? They were looking for heaven, ultimately. And Abraham knew that. We're going to get to that in a second. So, so I, okay, so I've already said it's a heavenly country that they were looking for, a, a city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God, not man. Uh, and this country, this city, is far better than the earthly, earthly one which Abraham and his immediate uh, descendants were sojourning as foreigners. Um, it's heaven itself. And this, this promise of heaven is included uh, in the covenant and, uh, and included, by the way, in this promise of heaven as our home is the promise of entering into, and this is even more the, the point of it, is entering into the very blessed presence of God, the triune God himself, on account of the fact that our leader and forerunner has gone before us there, and that's why we are allowed to go there, into the very presence of the triune God in a way that we haven't yet fully realized. We are in God's presence, no doubt about it, particularly on, in corporate worship on the Lord's Day, but there's a, full, a fuller experience. I don't normally tout experiences, um, but this is one I want to tout is the experience of being in God's blessed presence in a way that will be overwhelming. And that is what is promised when you, when heaven is promised in, in, uh, verses in chapter 11 and also in verse 20. It's alluded to in verse 20 of our passage. The presence of God Himself. So, that's the first content of your hope. The first promise that we, uh, have as a sure, uh, hope is heaven itself, if we're believers, and only if we're believers. 
And the second promise that is alluded to uh, uh, in this uh, passage, but in the greater book of Hebrews, or Sermon of Hebrews, is the promise uh, that was made to Abraham of descendants and a descendant. And this shouldn't be news to most of you who have sat under my preaching for a while. Again, go back to verse 11, chapter 11 rather. Now this time reading verses 17 through 19, I read other verses a moment ago, 8 through 10 and uh, 13 to 16. Now we're starting in verse 17 and we're going to read of the descendants promise that is among the promises that are part and parcel of the Abrahamic covenant, which is essentially the same as the new covenant, which we are under that administration. So verse 17, chapter 11, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son, an obvious allusion to Jesus as the, uh, Isaac typified. It was he meaning his only begotten son, to whom it was said, but was it Isaac? To whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed, I'm going to to translate the word there, seed shall be called. Seed can be singular, plural, or singular. It's both. And And the Holy Spirit means both. Verse 19, he considered... Abraham did, that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him, Isaac, back, meaning from the dead, because the angel stopped him, and he received Isaac back as a type. Abraham received Isaac back from the dead as a type. Type of what? Christ. Messiah of the seed who is the ultimate seed who is promised to him. You see, embedded within this promise of descendants or seed to Abraham, embedded within that promise of descendants was the promise of one particular descendant, one seed. A fact that Abraham himself understood in the verse I just read to you and also turn with me to John chapter 8, verse 36. Very important passage to make this point and other points with. John chapter 8, Gospel of John chapter 8, verse 56. I'll back up to verse... Uh, he's he's uh, uh, back up to verse 53. His, uh, his detractors are after him, of course, the, the Jewish leaders. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham, who died, because he had just... Uh, Jesus had just said something that caused them to uh, uh, think that uh, he was alive when Abraham uh, was around, and of course he was. Anyway, surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him. Of course, they thought they had. But I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. 
But I do know him and keep his word. And then he says this, My father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews, uh, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll leave it there. So notice, he saw it and was glad. In other words, he believed that Jesus was coming. He believed in that greater seed, that greater descendant of his, who was his Savior. Abraham was by faith, hoping for and looking to his own ultimate descendant, the Messiah, as his hope of forgiveness. And and why did he look to uh, his descendant? Because Jesus, the Messiah, he didn't know his name was Jesus, but he knew he was he was the uh, the seed uh, who was going to descend from him, be a, a man, and God. He was the guarantor of the other covenant promises that God had made to him, all of them, in the covenant. The seed was the same descendant of Abraham, to whom. Uh, uh, is the same descendant of Abraham to whom you and I must look and for whom you and I must hope is the one that Abraham looked to. Why must we look to uh, the Christ, the Messiah, the seed of the woman, Jesus of Nazareth, as our only hope of being forgiven by God? Because he is the one who has entered behind the veil of the heavenly, holy of holies, as our passage teaches. He is the one. Now you can say, well, he's the one that God designated as the only mediator between God and men. That's all true. But that's not what our passage is saying. Our passage is saying, you can enter, uh, uh, you, you rather have hope, a sure hope of heaven, because of the seed of Abraham. Because specifically, He is entered ahead of you into heaven through the veil which has been rent asunder and he is entered. And the triune God himself is behind the veil on his throne. And Jesus, the God-man, representing us, has gone before us to him and we enter with him. Verse 19 makes that point about that uh, the one who entered, uh, the forerunner, is one who has um, gone in the veil. I'll, I'll read it again. Uh, just, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. That's the reason. He's the only appointed mediator between God and man, and by, he mediates by entering into that veil. And not just by entering, but bringing an offering with him. And that offering, of course, is the offering of his own divine life and human life as a sacrifice to satisfy God's tri- the triune God's justice, which requires that all sin be punished. And he has done that. He has satisfied divine wrath because he experienced it. And he has reconciled to God all those who, down through the ages, have put their trust in him for their salvation. And only them. Have you put your 
sole trust in that forerunner, that mediator, that redeemer of God's elect, have you done that yourself? Trusting him alone to save you from the punishment that your sins and mine, all of us, deserve, which is eternal damnation. Have you done that? Have all of you done that? You must or you will pay the price yourself for your sins. Either Jesus will pay it and you will go to heaven or you will pay it for all eternity and never have that debt fully paid off because it's an infinite debt. You will pay it in hell. The choice is yours. It's also God's, but we're not going to get into that. But it is yours. Secondly, so we've looked at the content of your hope, which is the promises made by God to Abraham and to us. Secondly, this passage speaks of the quality of your hope, if you're a Christian. And that quality is, it is rock solid and secure, your hope is. 19, again, I'm not going to reread it, I just read it a moment ago. But it uses two terms to describe the quality of the believer's hope in God's promises for things that are yet future, or at least to be fully realized uh, in the future. He uses two terms. Those two terms mean nearly the same thing. They're almost synonyms. Um, And uh, the English word in the New American Standard is sure and steadfast. Um, These two terms are used to describe anything that is sufficiently stable or firm or um, steadfast so as to be incapable of movement or change. Sufficiently stable or firm so as to be incapable of movement or change. And he says, your hope is like that if you're a Christian. Your hope of heaven uh, and your hope of communion with God in that for eternity uh, in, in, just, in ineffable joy um, and bliss. But he also, the writer does, uses the figure of an anchor to describe the quality of the Christian's hope in addition to these terms I just mentioned. The point of using the anchor illustration is he's making, in that comparison to an anchor, he's saying that just as a ship which is anchored to the bottom of the sea does not move from the location that it's uh, located at, so our hope and the covenant promises that are the object of our hope, our hope is likewise immovable as as a ship that is anchored uh, securely to the bottom of the ocean. That is, it doesn't move. It is unchanging. Our hope is. So what is the immovable object to which our hope in the covenant promises is moored? Because our anchor is moored on something. What is it? It is God himself. It is God himself. He is the immovable object that our hope is moored to. He is the one who makes the believer's Hope rock solid and secure and immovable. How so? 
because, as the writer of the Hebrews uh, tells us in verse 18, uh, back up to verse 18, I'll read it here in just a second, it is impossible for the Almighty to lie. Verse 18, in order by two unchangeable things, God's promise and his oath are the two things that he's referring to there. He made the promise and then he took an oath. In order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement. We who have fled for refuge in laying hold of, there it is, the hope set before us. You see, when God promises something, that which he promises is absolutely will be fulfilled. And it cannot be otherwise, right? Why? Because of the fact that it is God who is making the promise. It is because the all-powerful, all-perfectly trustworthy God is the one who is making this promise. So, he's not just trustworthy, but wimpy, so he can't get what he's promised accomplished. He is trustworthy and omnipotent. He has absolutely no hindrances to accomplishing what he has willed to accomplish and said he's going to accomplish. Because he's Yahweh, not Baal or Allah, to be a little bit more modern. Or, fill in the blank, the liberal God, the Jehovah's Witness God, who is Jehovah, but not our Jehovah. Or the Mormon gods, No, all those gods would fail. First of all, they're non-existent, but even if they did exist, they would all fail at what Yahweh has accomplished, which is yet future for us, but is certain. So what is the quality of your hope? All of you have hope right now, whether you're a believer or not. What's the quality of your hope? If your hope is in yourself... And your efforts at being sufficiently good, then your hope of going to heaven and being with God is as stable and secure as quicksand. I've never stepped in quicksand, but I saw it on Gilligan's Island a few times. Those of you who might remember those episodes. Gilligan reaching for the branch, the, the, the big vine to pull himself out. Anyway, I don't know how that came up, but you get the point. That's how, that's how stable your hope is. It is, to use another illustration, a house of cards. If you're trusting in yourself to, make, to get to heaven, to be made right with God, which is the only way you're going to get to heaven, is if you're trusting, if you're, uh, yeah, is through God, uh, through uh by making him, uh, appeasing him and causing him to rec- be reconciled to you. You're not going to do it on your own, I promise you. God, God promises you more to the point in his word. You're not going to get there. If, on the other hand, your hope of being forgiven of your sins and going to heaven someday and being reconciled now to God is in Jesus Christ, Jesus the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, if your hope is in him, 
the God-man Jesus, not the other variants that are out there that are not real. Um, But if your hope is in Him, your hope is absolutely certain. You will get to heaven. You will enjoy God in ways that are much fuller than you enjoy Him now. And it will happen, you will have that for all of eternity. And you can be certain of it because of the one who promised it. But only if you have Jesus. And the final thing that this passage discusses, we've looked at the content of your hope, the quality of your hope. This is a believer's hope now. And then finally, the reason for your hope. And the reason for your hope is because Jesus himself entered God's presence as a forerunner on your behalf. And we've already kind of covered this a little bit, but I'll just review it briefly. First of all, I want to talk about what it means to be a forerunner. Again, it's one who goes before. And Jesus went before. Where did he go? He went behind the veil. Where? In heaven, not in Jerusalem. In heaven. The true temple. The true tabernacle. The true holy of holies. And he entered ahead of us. And here's the point that's so important. He entered on behalf of us. Verse 9, chapter 9, rather, verse 24, in Hebrews, turn with me there, 9.24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, I just said that, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, and notice, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Note those last two words. For us. You see, he entered for us as the high priest with the perfect sacrifice before the triune God where he actually sits and rules in heaven. And he entered, and this is all important, that place, that heavenly holy of holies, with a nature that he shares with you and me. A human nature. He is the God-man. He couldn't have accomplished what he accomplished unless he was the, the man. 100%. Like us, yet without sin, that's not, that's, that's not native to what it means to be human. Adam was human before he fell. He entered heaven with our nature, and by doing so, by be, entering as the God-man, he ensured that those of us who are spiritually united to him, Jesus, by faith, will one day be with him there. Because he entered as a man ahead of us. And secondly, because he entered as the high priest of God. Which verse 20, again, makes that point. It is because he entered as a high priest that we have this certain hope. He is a, what is a high priest's job? This is, the, this is what's so important. You've got to understand why it's so, what's such a big deal that he's a high priest. What does the high priest do? The high priest of Israel and of other, of other uh, religions uh, back in the day too uh, tried to do, didn't accomplish, but the high priest uh, of Israel ceremonially accomplished, but Jesus was ultimately accomplished. The high priest's job was to appease 
and gain the favor of God himself on behalf of those whom he was representing. And that's what Jesus does for all believers down through the ages. He, he appeases the justice of God fully and gains the favor of God fully on behalf of those whom he represents, the humans he represents. And God entered, he, Jesus rather, entered into God, the triune God's presence as the God-man into the heavenly holy of holies on behalf of all who, again, down through the ages, including Abraham, including Adam, including Methuselah, including David, including Elijah, including Paul, including you and me. He did this for all who will have or will put their trust in Him alone. He offered up a sacrifice on our behalf, Himself. He is infinitely valuable because He is God. The God-man, but fully God. And it was the person, I'm arguing with a young man at the coffee, not arguing, discussing with a young man at the coffee shop who's oneness about this. And he says, well, the nature of, the, the human nature of God died. Well, yes, the human nature of Jesus, of Jesus died. Yes, but Jesus died. Jesus was a person. He wasn't a nature. He was a person who is the God-man. And that's the thing they don't get. One of the things. Pray for that young man. He's, he's a good kid. He's just a little confused. Um, anyway, he, he offered up himself. He was the sacrifice. He was infinitely valuable. And he offered his infinitely precious life up to God in order to satisfy again the demands that all sin be punished fully. God can't be just if all sin isn't punished. And again... You either get it yourself, you take it the, the load yourself and, and go to hell, trying to pay it off and never do, or you let Jesus pay it for you by fleeing to him in faith, trusting in him alone. And God accepted the sacrifice that Jesus offered of himself on our behalf, and this is why you and I have a certain hope of being forever forgiven and accepted by God and being with Him for all of eternity. This is it. Because He, the God-man, entered as our high priest with an ex- a sacrifice that actually accomplished what was intended as opposed to the sacrifices of the uh, priests of the Old Testament that only ceremonially achieved cleansing. Jesus truly achieved cleansing for all those for whom He lived, died, and rose again. So the only reason you or I will go to heaven rather than hell when we die is if Jesus entered into heaven as our personal forerunner and high priest. And he is only your personal forerunner and high priest if you are trusting in him as your Savior from hell and God's wrath and your Lord, the one who is in charge of your life and to whom you bow the knee daily and say imperfectly, Lord, lead me. 
I'm yours. Do you have Jesus that way? Are you trusting in him alone? Not your baptism. Very important baptism. We talked about that in Sunday school. But it won't save you. Having godly parents won't save you. Being a member, being a member of a solid, reformed Presbyterian church won't save you. Having the catechism memorized won't save you. Having scripture memorized won't save you. Only this Jesus, the God-man, who is the only high priest, who brings the only acceptable sacrifice to the only God, only he can save you. You must trust him. May God have mercy on any, if there is any here today that doesn't know him, that he might come to know him or she might come to know him. But for those of us who do, it is well with your soul. Life stinks on earth. You know, my wife and I regularly be, uh, bemoan the, the effects of living under the 